would like to begin this episode by acknowledging the efforts of such conventions as SoonerCon. SoonerCon is Central Oklahoma's longest-running pop culture convention. The next event is scheduled for June 24th through 26, 2002 in Norman, Oklahoma. However, they need your help to put on the next event. Please visit SoonerCon.com to find out how you can help make SoonerCon 30 a reality. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today's episode is fantastic, but before I get to it, there are two points that I should bring up just for housekeeping purposes. One is, if you're getting this episode right after it hits the internet, yes, you are correct. It has been quite a while since the last episode. Three weeks, actually. To be perfectly honest, I do consider this to be a weekly show, and I really hate to go any time without posting an episode at least once, if not twice per week. However, sometimes circumstances force me to take a week or so off, and I don't like that, but it is what it is, and it's the nature of podcasting. So, we are back in business, and I plan to have not only an episode this week, but next week, I have many episodes queued up that are going to be fantastic, so buckle up and get ready. If you heard the intro, yes, I am also trying to bring people's attention to SoonerCon. It is a fantastic convention if you happen to be located anywhere in the Midwest. I would like to talk about that after the discussion. Today I'm going to be talking to John Vorhaus, who has many, many talents, especially in the area of writing and writing comedy. Let's get started with him right now. On tap today, I have John Vorhaus. How are you doing, good sir? Happy as a hot dog at a vegetarian barbecue. Oh, that is a good one. <laughs> and you know what? I know why you got off with the joke there. I know why you're making me laugh because on top of my stack of useful books is a very dog-eared ratty copy of the comic toolbox. A I picked that up years ago and didn't realize you were the same guy that wrote it until I was going through my notes today. A lot of people have that experience. First of all, let me tell you what to do with the raggy, dog-eared, ragged copy you have. Buy a new one. Mm-hmm. That's always a good idea. Yeah. Uh, and save that one for the archives. Uh, as you might know, I travel in many different circles, including poker and ultimate Frisbee. And every now and then, people in those circles will say, are you that comic toolbox guy? And I'll say, yeah, yes, I am. So you're not the first person to put two and two together and come up with six and a half. <laughs> well, I'm going to put that in the show notes. So if somebody wants to get a home, I highly recommend the book. If you're looking to just have a really analytical, but still fun experience of how to create comedy and how to deconstruct it and without losing the magic of it. That's really the key, isn't it? To have the, the technology of creativity without losing the magic of it. If I may discourse for a moment. Please. Eastern philosophy describes creativity as carrying buckets to the river. And I always kind of like that idea, but I've always been unsatisfied with it because it implies that the relationship between the individual and the creativity is limited to buckets. Like you're not going to get any more out of your creative experience than this inefficient, natural, we might call it a magical uh, approach. But I'm all about, you know, throwing up a dam or an aqueduct, doing some irrigation, making more use of that flow of creativity as it flows by. Because I don't want to have to rely on the magic of creativity where you just get hit in the head by a brilliant idea and you take it and you run with it. Certainly that 
experience exists. It's inspirational in the sense of breath being drawn in, inspired. We bring, bring in ideas from outside our experience. But day in and day out, if we're going to be professionals, we need better systems than that. Otherwise, we'll spend all day waiting for inspiration to strike and be very frustrated when it doesn't. My idea is to have work days that are productive and not frustrating. So that's my approach. And if you're constantly waiting for inspiration, you're at the mercy of when it hits, which could be at three in the morning. It could be mm -hmm. when you're in the shower and you can't plan a business around that. You can't plan a career around that. True. Although I would note that inspiration in the shower is neurochemically or biologically mandated or inspired. Do you know about this? I don't. When we're in the presence of bouncing water, where we find in showers or fountains or crashing waves or running streams that the the electro uh, mag well i don't know I, I don't have the science of it but that um, bouncing water throws off negatively charged ions or negative ions and we in the course of our day especially if we're around a lot of technology we'll build up a lot of positive ion charge in our bodies and so when we find ourselves exposed to negative ions like in a shower we feel good and our creativity is unleashed kind of because we're just in the presence of bouncing water and also kind of because we're in the shower and we're just letting our thoughts go where they will. But people always talk about, you know, being inspired by ideas that they have in the shower. I have ideas in the shower all the time. I expect them at this point. I kind of go looking for them. You know, I've always felt like it was just a matter of, because I'm a technology guy. I mean, I do live for this stuff and, and that there's good and bad things that go along with that. But I feel like, you know, when I live my life with my iPhone in one hand and my computer in front of me and my switch behind me, that's stuff that's very recent to humans. But mm -hmm. things like in my shower where I'm surrounded by stone with water falling, those are stone and water are things we've had for millions of mm. years. And it's the reset in our brain going back to the basics, I think helps. Oh, that's a good way of looking at it. I hadn't thought about that. We are aided by all the tools that surround us, but each and every one of those tools has not stood the test of um, evolutionary time, shall we say? Mm -hmm. I do this thought experiment with students sometimes. I say to them, if you wanted to preserve information for 10,000 years, what do you think your best bet would be? Do you want to weigh in on this? Well, the, what we've seen so far would be carving it into a stone wall in a cave. Carve it, carve it in stone, right. Yes. And people will go through a lot of, well, you know, you have a, a, a thumb drive with a backup and an independent power supply, maybe some solar power to, to support it so you can retrieve the information. Yeah, no, carve it in stone. If you really want it to last, that's the way to do it. I've heard, and I'm forgetting exactly the, the material they're using, but it's a variation on a CD, but it's made out of like nitrogen encased in glass. It's the same concept, but on a lot bigger scale, and which is just a long way of carving something in stone. It's just a very high tech way of doing it. Mm -hmm. The concept is still the same. And, and the outcome is, uh, is in doubt. I spent a lot of mm -hmm. time thinking about this because, uh, you know, my books appear in print form and in digital form. And the, the question that I have as someone who spends a little time thinking about his legacy, which of those forms is likelier to deliver my words into the future? Now you could say, well, books, because books last as long as they're not you know, burned up or soaked or thrown away. That information is stored, it doesn't require power. On the other hand, digital, you can repeat or re 
you can copy the digital information countless times and then spread those copies far and wide in hopes that some of those, if you will, seeds will sprout. Uh, it may be a fool's paradigm to think about legacy too much anyhow, since we're all just a drop in the cosmic bucket. But talking about the, co the comic toolbox, I wrote a book 25 years ago that has stood the test of time of 25 years. And one thing we can conclude from this is it's probably good for another 25 years at least, which puts it outside the window of when I'm likely to be alive, which is an interesting thing to think, think about. I can go to my grave knowing that I have created something that will outlast me. A lot of people have that goal. A lot of people kind of, um, achieve that goal without really realizing that they've done it. But to one degree or another, a lot of us you know, engage with that question of, well, what happens to my ideas, my thoughts, my values, my impact after I'm gone? And I've created this carrier wave for myself that will transmit Vorhausian ideas into the future after I'm gone. And I, I find that kind of exciting. I think it's completely self-indulgent, but and ultimately probably irrelevant to my experience because I'll be dead and won't know. But still, you ask yourself, what's the point of playing this game we call life? You know, you can play to have fun. You can play to win. You can play to have fun while winning. Um, I play for impact. I consider myself to be a steward of my DNA, and my only job is to be a good steward of my DNA. It was endowed to me by forces beyond my control. It will be endowed to others by forces beyond my control. But while it's in my stewardship, I'm gonna try and be a good steward to it. That's a, an amazing concept there. And it transcends any type of belief system or it, it's a very practical way of looking at what we're gonna get out of life. And all my life, I have been searching for a rational grounding for faith, a practical way to think about philosophical, theological, um, psychological issues without having to rely at any point on the idea, well, I'm doing it because God said, or, or I'm doing it for reasons that I don't know. And this idea that I have of, of envisioning myself as a link in a DNA chain is my way of rationalizing the relationship between higher powers and, and natural evolution. Whether you want to say that I live in this body, wear this shirt, have this cool old backdrop here because of gifts bestowed upon me by God or by my DNA, that's a distinction without a difference as far as I'm concerned. Wherever the gifts came from, I have them. They're here in my hands. The question is now, what do I want to do with them? And by the way, not even for the sake of helping people around me. But for the sake of the benefit that I receive on a gut level when I help people around me, I call this benefit psychic income. And it's not to be overlooked when we're engaged in creative practice, because we know that day in and day out, our practice doesn't pay us the money that it should. Everybody, I've worked with writers all over the world. I've never met one who said, you know, my problem is I'm overpaid. <laughs> that, that never happens. Stand-up comics, same way. You just don't hear them going to the stage complaining, saying, you know, ladies and gentlemen, I really am stealing my paycheck here today. Doesn't happen. So the money is not there, but the creative urge is still there. So the question for every creative practitioner is, granted that I have the urge, granted that I'm going to scratch the itch, what other benefits can I derive from the experience if I know I can't count on money? And so some of the benefits that I think about are experience, first and foremost. Every act of creation uh, contributes to my stack of acts of creation, makes me a better craftsperson, which is important and ongoing. So I can always count on the word, the work giving me 
experiential benefits, learning benefits, graft, growth of my practice benefits. But I can also think about, well, what is this going to do for or to other people? I was just writing about this the other day in my new book, The Little Book of Stand-Up. I've written a very small, super dense look at stand-up comedy in a way that a lot of people don't look at it, not from the set-up, set-up, punchline point of view, but kind of this inner game idea. And one of the ideas that I was thinking about, and one of the, the really hard challenges that stand-up comics face this, these days, what do I do about political correctness? What do I do about uh, public dialogue and discourse, especially if you're older like I am, where the norms have completely changed? You can feel yourself walking through a minefield because you understand that a stand-up comic is supposed to unleash some lightning bolts. But on the other hand, if I unleash the wrong lightning bolts, then I'm going to send the wrong message about my intentionality. Uh, Stand-up comics are really confused in this space right now. They don't know what to do. And my idea as a teacher and a practitioner is always, how can I simplify this? How can I think about it in a way that will just make pure sense on the level of the stuff itself? So here's what I've come up with. Comedy, as we know, has power. It has tremendous power to influence. Broadly speaking, we can say that it has the power to lift up or the power to knock down. Either you're a lifter upper or a knocker downer. And you can say to yourself, what kind of comic am I? Am I a lifter upper or a knocker downer? Now, I don't want to dismiss knocker downers and say that they have no place in the dialogue because comedy is subversive, hugely subversive. The relationship between a comic and an iconoclast and a social commentator and a social destroyer, all of this stuff is like, this is part of what comedy's job is. Happens that another part of comedy's job is to spread good feeling and make people feel great about the situation they're in. So in comedy, you have these two forces working in dynamic conflict with one another. You're either building up or you're knocking down. Both are valid, but each of us falls into one category or the other, pretty much. I'm a, I'm a lifter upper, builder upper, always have been all my life. Somebody wants to be a knocker downer, that's fine with them. But here's the benefit. If I'm a lifter upper and I come up with a joke and I'm not sure whether the joke is acceptable in current terms, I don't have to judge it by those terms. I can just ask myself, does this joke lift up? If the joke lifts up, then it belongs in my act without question. If the joke doesn't lift up, then it doesn't belong in my act without question. And there's no ambiguity in my mind. There's no doubt in my mind whether it's okay for me to tell the joke because I have this controlling idea. I'm a lifter upper. And if the joke legitimately lifts up, then that gives me the freedom to put forth any idea I want to. That's my way of wriggling out of the political correctness trap. Sorry, that was quite a discursive answer sure but it's a damn good one and i love all those ideas i on this show i I have a broad range of interests i mean people kind of know me as a star trek guy or an mst3k guy but there's a whole bunch of stuff in my library for example i got to know your work through married with children that's that's the thing that in my mind that really i gravitated toward And people say, well, why do you watch a show like that? And because it's silly, it's not this, it's not that. It's like, but you know what? We use fiction, we use comedy, we use creativity to look at life and say, how do I want this to be better? How do do I want to build this? And what do I say about a show like Married with Children that was raunchy and it's, it's decades old and outdated? It's like, well, I look at, you know what? When I see people being rude, why do I find that funny? I find it funny because I don't like my life sometimes. I don't like my world sometimes. And I want rude people to take it down a peg. I mean, this is where we get that from. Mm -hmm. Well, I can speak from 
a triangulation of authority when it comes to married with children because I did write for the original back in 1988. Uh, but I also made the Russian version of Married with Children. I ran the writing staff of the Russian version of Married with Children for two winters. And I also had a hand in the development of the Bulgarian version, the Bulgarian version of Married with Children. So I have some authority in this area. Here's the part that's completely overlooked by people who look at Married with Children and think that's just a rude show that's that's coarse, that's objectionable. If you think about the Bundy family and you think about all the crap they give each other and all the crap the world gives them, and then you look at how strong the bond is that exists between them. And if you don't think there's a bond, just think about the moment in all the episodes where they put their hands in together and they go, whoa, Bundy. Clearly they feel a bond. Our takeaway as viewers is this. If those horrible people with their dysfunction and their impaired ability to get along, if they can make it as a family with all the problems they face, I can make it as a family with my much more modest set of problems. And that metric is the key to making successful television, especially situation comedy. You just say to the audience, here's a more extreme version of the problems you're facing. And if you can look at these extreme version, this extreme version and say to yourself, well, I don't have it as bad as that, then you take away a really good positive feeling from that experience. And that's why that experience is offered to you. Exactly. And like I said, I, I find value in almost anything I can get my hands on when if, I, if it clicks with me. Like early this morning, I was watching Bugs Bunny cartoons, <laughs> which, you know, there's, there's a value in the art, but just in... The, the craziness of, of just letting loose emotions that you'll find in cartoons like that. I, I don't differentiate between high art and low art. I just say, if it clicks with me, there's a reason why. And I want to know what that reason is. Hmm. Well, first of all, I commend you for that, that perspective. I'm always telling my students when they're looking at their own work, your tendency is to judge, but judgment asks, how does this make me feel? Judgment makes me say, this is good, that's bad, and therefore I have a reaction. I prefer to evaluate and step outside of value judgment. And I say, it's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just a thing that is. And it sounds like you're bringing that same um, inspectors or investigators or explorers quality to the programming that you're consuming. Most people don't do that. Most people don't get past it's for me and I like it, or it's not for me and I don't like it. They pass judgment very quickly and they don't have a lot of room in their hearts and in their minds for evaluating material objectively. Not for the sake of asking, does this work for me? But rather for the sake of asking, what is it intending to do? And is it succeeding in realizing its intention? To me, that's the best way to evaluate art because then you get to you know, encompass, well, what does the artist want out of this? And how well is the artist pulling it off? I'll give you an example. I wrote a book called A Million Random Words, and it is literally one million random words. It's digital only, because if it were in print, it would be 4,000 words, I mean, 4,000 pages. It just couldn't happen. But the digital version is only five bucks. And for $5, you get a million random words. Now, people who are in, an, in a judging frame of mind will look at that and say, that's just completely stupid. That's a, that's a rank self-indulgence. It's a joke. Who are you kidding? But people who get back past that and look at it more on the level of inspection will ask, what is this guy trying to do? 
Well, he's trying to give me a resource, obviously, something that I'm going to have to make something of since it has no form or structure itself. What can I make of it? Some people say, well, maybe I can find uh, interesting words I didn't know before. Some people look for and find great character names. Some people find they'll take three random words and try and tell a story based on those three random words. My favorite way to use it is to take a page of random words, delete all the ones that I don't want, and leave a little kind of a tone poem behind in the nature of a relationship between found art, that is the words were there, and the artist's intent, what can I find in these words? So if somebody says to me, and believe me, friends do, your million random words is a completely self-indulgent joke. My response is, maybe it's a joke, but I think it's a joke you don't get because the intent is not to trick people into buying a book that isn't really a book. The artist's intent is to give people a resource. And if they find their way to that resource, then I, as an artist, have achieved my intent. I can think of two things to say to that. One is, I have played far worse jokes for far more than five bucks. So as a value proposition, I see it already. And second, if you're telling me I can look at this page with random words on it, pluck out a few and make a story, how is that any different than me sending my child out to the, the woods behind our house, gathering up a couple of rocks and twigs and seeing her build something in the backyard? You're just taking what's there and using your own mind to play with it. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there is anything different, except that both give you an opportunity to do sophisticated operations. Now, I sound like I'm going down a rabbit hole, but bear with me. You send a kid out into the woods and you say, collect some sticks and stones. And the, the child will enter into that activity in a kind of a random fashion, but pretty soon will start laying instructions or rules on the process. I'm only going to take sticks that I can carry in one hand or I'm only gonna collect round stones, or screw the sticks, I'm only going after the stones. Or now that I have these stones, I'm gonna build a fort or throw them at trees or whatever I'm going to do with it. The minute you say, do this random creative thing, our brains immediately start imposing order and structure and make the random thing non-random. And once you start making those choices consciously, you start to see that the answers you get, the places you arrive at creatively, are utterly dependent on the way you set the proposition in the first place. To go back to a million random words, I have in my files some distillations of random words. Sometimes I'll say to myself, I want to fill this page with noun adjective or adjective noun or I want to try to create complete sentences as far as possible using this random material, or I'm only looking for character names right now, or I wanna to string together a bunch of one syllable and two syllable words in a certain order so it has a kind of a poetic feel to it. Each time I'm making this choice, I'm putting an instruction on the creative process. I'm saying, do it this way, look for three syllable words that sound great back to back, and then you get, I don't know, uh, dinkity pinkity. It's, I don't know what those words even mean, but you get a solution that you wouldn't get any other way. You wouldn't arrive at it randomly. You only arrive at it when you impose order on it. Now, here's where this is useful to writers. Let's say you're a screenwriter and you want to write a screenplay. And I say to you, okay, go ahead and write a screenplay. Well, that's an impossible challenge for you because you don't know what the screenplay is about. You don't know the story. You don't know the genre. You don't know the intent. You don't know the characters. You don't know anything. And you can't start knowing these things until you start making some choices. But if I say to you, 
Give me a screenplay that's an idea for a romantic comedy involving two teenagers living in the far north of Russia. I've given you such a specific place to look for an answer that it won't be hard at all to find an answer right there. The solution set is sufficiently constrained. You know what kind of problem you're trying to solve. That's why I always tell my students, if you have a creative problem that you can't solve, don't try to solve it. Break it down into successively smaller and smaller problems until you come across a problem that you actually can solve. And this is related to that in the sense that if I'm trying to write a screenplay, I can't make any progress until I tell myself what kind of screenplay, what genre, what story, what intent, and so on and so forth. The beauty of being a creative practitioner, a creator, an artist, is that we get to make choices. All day, every day, we get to decide, is this, um, is this um, am I going to use blue paint or red paint? Is this a comedy? Is this a drama? Is it a poem? Is it prose? And every time we make a choice, we are acting as artists. This is another thing that drives me crazy, drive, has driven me crazy for a year, but it really drives me crazy when I look at other people challenging themselves with this. We drive ourselves nuts with the question, am I an artist? Am I legit? Can I call myself a writer or a stand-up comedian or an artist or any other thing that I aspire to? Because I don't know if I'm legitimate in the eyes of the world. And Aaron, as we talked about earlier, I'm always interested in getting out of the eyes of the world and getting into my own eyes. Mm -hmm. Well, here's my take on that. If you are engaged in something that requires you to make choices in any artistic realm at all, the minute you start making choices, you are an artist and you never have to doubt that you are. Because art, creativity is choice, full stop. That's, that's an excellent way of looking at it. Uh, a couple episodes back, I was talking with an actor and we had to take a half a second to, to make an aside and talk about what art is. How do we define it? And I said, my definition of art is anything you accomplish, anything you put your mind to. It is simply, art is simply wanting to do something well, whether that is baking a chicken hmm. or creating a masterpiece movie and anything in between art is simply talent. So by, by what you're saying there, if, if we were to, um, what app, once you decide to do it, once you put yourself into being creative, then everything else is just a matter of results. Mm -hmm. I like that way of thinking about art. I imagine the problem is that the word art has two meanings. You're using art in the, the, the sense of, artifice that is not artificialness but a structure mm -hmm. and and you're saying whenever i build a structure out of words or pictures or music or jokes or whatever then i am engaging in art in the sense of building something creating something the trouble is that art has the double meaning of uh, visual art and especially art equals artist or uh, you're not an artist unless you're validated somehow as a capital A artist. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that those two word, that word has two meanings really creates a lot of confusion for people. Again, the heartache lies in asking yourself, am I good enough? Am I for real? And it's natural for us to want to have outer reality confirm that we're for real, but if we count on outer reality to confirm that we're real, we're kind of setting ourselves up for disappointment because outer reality is never going to give us as much validation as we like it to. I'll give you an example. 
from my upcoming experience. Uh, I'm new in art, in visual art. I haven't been doing it too long. I am capable of some modest successes, as you see here. This is my original art. I have lately been invited to hang my works in a local coffee shop for the first time. This will be my first hang it on a wall and see if people respond to it. And I'm quite certain at this point that I'm going to get like no response because my work is, it's not, uh, it's not pop culture. It's me culture. And, and my perspective is pretty damn bent. So I'm prepared to hang these pictures on a wall and let them be there for six weeks and then take them all down again, completely unsold. And if that happens, I'll, I'll feel a, a tiny sense of ouch my feelings. You know, like, why doesn't the world love me? But I'm 65 years old, and I know a thing or two about validation. I know that there are times when the world loves me for reasons that have nothing to do with me. And there are times when the world turns it back on me for reasons that have nothing to do with me. But I'm 65 years old, and since the age of 25, I've been an independent creative practitioner nonstop, which means that I figured out a way to have a practice. And I figured out a way to sell enough to keep going and also figured out a way to keep myself going emotionally, despite the fact that there's always a gap between the level of acclaim I have and the level of acclaim I secretly want. For anybody out there listening who's interested in having an effective lifelong practice of anything, the answer is simple, validate within. Find your satisfaction in the work you do for yourself, by yourself. Hope that it sells or finds an audience, but don't get hooked on the need to have it sell or find an audience in order for you to feel good about yourself. Because if you get hooked on that externalized validation, then if you don't get it, you'll have such strong negative incentive that you'll stop working and then you'll be out of your practice, which is the one place you don't wanna be. And, 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 and I've, I've talked to a lot of writers about this, writers especially, because I've traveled all over the world teaching and training writers and a lot of them I mean, I've taught writers in Nicaragua who didn't have two um, uh, Cordobas, that's the currency of Nicaragua, two Cordobas to rub together. And, and I've dealt with writers in Russia, very uh, downtrodden and not paid nearly what they're worth. And in both cases, and in many other cases, I have to say to them, guys, you know, this job is never going to pay you what it's worth. The system is rigged against you in that sense. Part of the reason it's rigged against you is you want to write so badly that you'll write for free. And because you'll write for free and people who are interested in money know this, then they're going to squeeze you. They're going to leverage your own desire to express yourself to depress the price they pay you. And that's completely nefarious. And if you find yourself in that situation, dear listener, here's a strategy you can use. Because the reason they pay us so little is that we're so afraid to ask for what we're worth. It's like this. If you say to me, I really like this, how much is it? Will you, will you sell it to me? The first thing I do is negotiate against myself. I say to myself, if I set the price high, I'm afraid that person is going to laugh at me. They're going to say, you think that's worth $2,500 or $25 or 25 cents? You must be out of your mind. You, you're, you're simultaneously egotistical and completely unrealistic. You're a fraud. This is what we're afraid of. We're afraid that if we set the price too high, people will laugh and call us a fraud. In fact, they won't do that. We're just afraid that they will. So here's the system I've devised. Whenever I want to put a price on something, I ask myself, as a scared little rabbit of an artist, 
what's the highest number I could think of asking for this? A number so high would probably make me want to throw up in my mouth a little bit. Then I'm going to double it and ask for that. And that about puts me in the right range. That's, that's like, we do tend to undervalue ourselves just out of habit. I mean, it's, we, we negotiate every day. We negotiate for groceries. We negotiate for a good parking spot. We're so used to second guessing what we can actually get if we just let go of our own mindset. Mm -hmm. But while we're talking about being out in the world and training writers, I would not forgive myself if I didn't ask about creating the foreign versions of Married with Children. Hmm. Uh, well, do you want Bulgaria or Russia or both? And in which order? Uh, whatever order they happened in. And yes, both, please. All right. I'm going to start with Bulgaria because there's a, a, a quick uh, and useful learning takeaway for people in the audience. Believe it or not, I'm going to talk about a creative tool. And that tool is called the tool of abstraction. Now, bear with me. It's 2010 and I'm in Bulgaria. We're doing development work on Married with Children. Now, the way this works is they take the original American scripts and they translate them into Bulgarian if necessary, and unless they're English readers at the table. Then they read the script and they rewrite a story outline. They reverse engineer a story outline that fits in with uh, the characters that they've developed for their domestic version, in this case, Bulgaria. And sometimes they come up against real challenges because Married with Children, made in America in the 1980s, that's a long distance in space and time from Bulgaria in 2010. Uh, on, a, on a certain day, we were looking at an episode of Married with Children that involved Alan Pegg, the protagonists, visiting a drive-in restaurant that was on the verge of being torn down. And it was a drive-in restaurant that they remember from their youth. It's where they hung out and it's where their romance blossomed. And one of the people I was collaborating with said, well, we have nothing like a drive-in restaurant here in Bulgaria. We, we can't we can't adapt this, the, the thing doesn't exist here. And I said, well, the thing doesn't exist, but the abstract quality that it represents does exist. So let's think about it. We have this concrete thing that's called a drive-in restaurant. And we have the emotional quality of that thing, which is nostalgia. Alan Pegg are nostalgic for something from their youth. So now we have this abstract quality is nostalgia and we can bring it over here to Bulgaria and we can say to ourselves, what represents this abstract quality of nostalgia in our society? And one of the, the, the guys in the room said, I know exactly what it is. In the year 1990, 1989, 1990, when communism first fell in Bulgaria, for the first time, they had uh, commercial restaurants, capitalist Western style restaurants that you could go to and order a meal. And so people who were in their 20s and 30s in 2010 were in their teens and 20s in, um, sorry, childhood and teens, 20 years prior. So they have a strong nostalgic connection to this restaurant from 20 years ago, which, oh, by the way, was called Democratic Steak. That was the name of the restaurant. So the tool of abstraction, take a thing that doesn't belong here, but ask yourself what abstract quality does it have? Then, uh, then take that abstract quality, move it into the environment that you need to use it in, and ask yourself what physical thing represents that abstract quality or that emotion. Now, you can see that if you do this just a couple of times, you're going to get into the rhythm of it pretty fast. You know, um, sports arena, adrenaline, adrenaline, soccer pitch, like that. Uh, so what I got out of Bulgaria 
was no matter how far apart things look culturally, they have a human quality underneath them. And if you can figure out what that human quality is, you can build a story that works on the same um, level of emotionality. Now to Russia, different situation in Russia. I told you I was running the writing staff of the Russian version of Married with Children. And there are a couple of things you need to know. One is that um, my secret weapon as I've traveled around the world, knowing that the writers I'm working with are undertrained and underpaid and overworked and overwrought, I try and get them to fall in love with me. I try to get them to be loyal to my idea of what it means to be a writer so that they can energize themselves to do things they're not getting compensated for. This is it's my little secret and it's worked quite well. I, I, um, I pride myself on being a little bit inspirational and getting people on my side. Hey, come on kids, let's go do this. But I'm an American and Russians, even to this day, they don't much like or love Americans. So working in an environment where I didn't have an immediate emotional bond built in between myself and the writers, that was a real challenge to me. And I wanna say that in certain circumstances, I didn't completely overcome the challenge because just as I was foreign to them, they were extremely foreign to me. As a, as a colleague of mine said, I asked him once, do you think there's a possibility of democracy in Russia? And he said, you have to understand that in 800 years, we haven't had five minutes of democracy in Russia. And that makes a difference. That controls the mindset of the individuals doing the work and the culture that they're speaking to and the way they go about their business and the whole thing. So I really felt like a fish out of water and not just out of water, but in a kind of an environment that was toxic to me because it was so far from what I was used to. But I remember saying to myself at a certain point, I'm gonna be the best consultant there is on this project, which means I'm gonna let go of all of my own preconceptions and just try to integrate with the culture as I find it. And this is another, I guess, advantage I built up after so many years of doing this kind of thing that I, I can lose myself in the place I'm in, in a way that will allow me to operate more effectively. But let's consider this. And again, this kind of kind of comes, circles around to a principle we can all um, uh, log on to or sign on to. Often my writers would pitch me a joke and I would say, I don't get that joke. And then I would hear these words, but it's funny in Russian. And every time I heard, but it's funny in Russian, I was confronted with a challenge because I figured one of three things was probably true. One, it's funny in Russian and I just don't have enough cultural information to solve the puzzle of the joke. That's legit. Two, it's funny in Russian, but I'm hearing an English translation of the Russian words and something is literally lost in translation. Also a possibility. Third possibility, it's not funny. The writer knows it's not funny, is too lazy or scared to change it and is therefore hiding behind the defense, but it's funny in Russian. And now if we think about everybody, you, me, everybody in the audience who is a comic creator, someone who writes jokes, we all know this, this feeling like, uh, well, I just told you a joke and you didn't get it. And my choices are either admit the joke didn't work or call you stupid. And if I'm out of control of my ego, I'm gonna call you stupid. Now saying to me, but it's funny in Russian, that's not quite as radical as saying you're stupid if you don't get this joke, but it is, or it can be a defense mechanism. 
So if I'm a good collaborator, in this case, I'm the head writer, but I might just be working with a writing partner. If I'm to be a good collaborator, I need to know my partner well enough on an emotional and psychological level so that I can tell the joke's funny, I just don't have the cultural information, or the joke's funny, I just don't have the right words, or the joke's not funny and the writer is being defensive, in which case I can address the latter and help that writer find a joke that works to everybody's satisfaction. In Russia, this was a prickly subject because I was the American hired by Sony to run the writing staff of a Russian television show, and there's a certain amount of, who the hell are you to tell us what's funny? And the way that I tried to combat that was, by accepting the proposition, okay, I, I, I can see that I might not get this joke, that it's funny in Russian, so explain it to me. What does your audience know that I don't know that will, um, that will make it clear to me that the joke will work for them even though it doesn't work for me? And then I get the explanation, and sometimes it completely solves the problem. You know, I say, okay, I get that. I can see how that can be funny. Sometimes I understand that there is a problem in the, in the joke technology, like the, 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 the funny word isn't at the end of the sentence where it belongs. Mm. And I can fix it on the level of the structure of the joke. And then sometimes it's revealed that the writer can't defend it, sees it's not funny, was just hoping that it was funny, and finally says, Daladna, which is Russian for yes, willingly, but really it's kind of the opposite of that. Daladna, I'll change the joke. Uh, really uh, important learning experience for me. I spent two winters in Moscow, and I can tell you this you know the expression winter wonderland? Mm -hmm. It's just like that, but without the wonderland part. So that's married with children in Russia and Bulgaria. Well, I, that, I can't tell you how much I appreciate what you just did there because I remember when Married with Children was still on, I remember seeing stories about how it was being exported to other countries and, and all of these other versions out there. And I could find very little information about that little side story until just now. So having anything out there to fill in that gap in my knowledge, I really think is pretty awesome. All right. Well, let me fill in two more for you. Okay. The, the Russian version of Married with Children is called... <laughs> Forgive me, my Russian colleagues, because I'm going to butcher this name, Shlesti Vimesti, which means um, happy together. So if you were to go to YouTube and search Russian version of Married with Children, happy together, you'd likely to find your way to some clips that you wouldn't otherwise find. Okay. So there are some resources there, and I'll bet some of them are subtitled or, you know, automatically generated subtitles. Let's circle back to that because I've got some stories to tell about machine translation that are pretty funny. Okay. Uh, but uh, the other thing that I would point out is if people are interested, the way this works is a company like Sony, that they own Married with Children. They export the show to other countries with large non-English speaking audiences, Russian, um, India is a market, China is a market, big mono uh, linguistic markets are their target. And they basically set up subsidiary country companies in these countries and sell products themselves. They sell uh, episodes of Married with Children, license them to the foreign market. This gives the foreign market the right to take the original American scripts, convert them into story outlines, then convert the story outlines into new scripts in the native language that, um, that work for the characters that they have developed in designing the show. The benefit to the producers, obviously, is they sell a lot more product. But there's also tremendous benefit to the markets themselves, because 
writing sitcom ain't easy. And it's especially not easy if you don't know what the heck you're doing. And in many of the places that I've worked in the world, I've been the first person trying to make the first sitcom with people who don't know what they're doing. So this idea of taking an existing format and translating it into local language is a great interim step for people who haven't yet mastered the task of creating a sitcom from scratch that works for the local market. Also, they have the benefit of knowing that the scripts are tried and true. They've been around for a while. They're known to work. And um, so there's a lot of arguments for this, why this, why this works. With Married with Children, it's as simple as this. Everybody in the world loves Al Bundy. Everybody in the world, everywhere I've gone, they've said, that Al Bundy, he's just like us, which is interesting when you think about it, because we look at him as a loser, and we say, uh, that guy's a loser, but he's not like us. I think that's an American quality. In many other countries in the world, they say, that guy's a loser, and we are too. And they don't mean it in a bad sense, in a negative sense. It's just life circumstance. Uh, gosh, I've spent some time in Poland. Poland has been a horrific place for most of its history. People invading, occupying, killing, ravaging. Right now they're enjoying peace and prosperity for the first time in hundreds of years. And the psychic attitude of the country is just changing day by day. My only fear is that at the end of the day, Poland still exists on a flat plane between Russia and Germany. I feel it's only a matter of time before one or another of those frisky um, predatory powers decides it's time to take Poland again. So, but we all have a national psyche and it informs our creative choices and informs what our audience is interested in. I was talking with a guy in Canada the other day and the way he expressed the relationship between Canada and the United States from a Canadian's point of view is like, we're the stepchild. Nobody pays any attention to us. We can't export our culture to America. They dump their culture on us. Can't, producers in Canada say it's cheaper to buy an American show than to make a Canadian show, and that's absolutely true. So it's not surprising that, that the Canadian television culture or the culture of television makers should turn out to have kind of a chip on their shoulder. They've been fighting against American cultural imperialism for as long as they've been alive. So it's interesting to think about. One of the great benefits of technology is that the cultural imperialism is breaking down because now you can make a pretty damn good TV show with a cell phone. And it, there's no real distribution barrier anymore because if somebody makes a, their cell phone show, that show can be in China or Bulgaria just as fast as it could be down the street. Exactly. Exactly so. That's the good news. The bad news is it puts increased downward pressure on prices because if there are people around the world who are making TV shows just out of the pure love of making TV shows and, and sending them around the world for free just for the sake of gaining some eyeballs and some validation – Somebody else comes along and says, I want to be a pro here. I want to be a practitioner. I want to get paid. Well, why should we pay you when we can get 95% of the quality from this other guy for free? And that's true in art. That is visual art. It's true in novels. It's true in music. It's true in television and film. It's a kind of a crisis of our time that the democratization of the creative process and the exploding size of the market means that it's harder and harder every day for someone to make a buck doing stuff creatively. That's when I turn to this, this uh, motto of mine, keep giving them you until you is what they want because you can't sell anything in competition 
with anybody else if anybody can do it. Like, let's say I set out to write a list of uh, light bulb jokes. How many feminists does it take to change a light bulb? That's not funny. Um, I can generate that list, but I can't sell it because there's no value add. I'm not bringing my special insight into it. But if I want to tell you about my experience of changing a light bulb and almost electrocuting myself when I was five years old, that's a place that I can go that nobody else can go. That's where my value is added. That's where I can actually find a market for my work because the only one who has my work is me. And this is important for people to think about as they struggle to ask themselves, am I writing for the market or am I writing for myself? And the answer is to write for the market effectively, you have to write for yourself completely, never forgetting that you're writing for the market as well. It's a challenge. It's a mind scratcher. It, it makes your head explode. But if you don't engage in that challenge, try and figure out what is the me that I'm bringing to the world, then you just end up mimicking what's already out there and you can't sell that because it's already out there. So for somebody to come along and say, I know this sitcom idea will sell because it's just like this other sitcom idea that's sold, I'll say, yeah, maybe, but you're not going to sell it because the guy who created it is selling the new version or somebody else higher up on the food chain than you is doing it. In any case, it's not you. The only thing you can sell effectively is you. That's true in stand-up as well. I mean, you've, you, you know this. You see stand-up comics who do a solid five minutes, a tight five minutes, but they walk off the stage and you have no idea who they are mm -hmm. because their, their five minutes doesn't reflect the authenticity of their experience in any way. Um, I'll give you an example. I won't, I won't go down this rabbit hole because it's a sick and stupid rabbit hole, but I'm a recreational stand-up comic. I do a little stand-up comedy. And one of the things I like to do is an impression of a guy singing 99 bottles of beer on the wall just as the acid kicks in. Now, uh, that's a joke I can tell for reasons that I don't need to spell out in the public forum, but let's just say that I have some, some um, personal uh, knowledge in this area so I can bring some authenticity to that joke that somebody else couldn't bring to it. But I get to get up on stage and I deliver that material. Love it or hate it, people are going to know that's that guy. And in this market, you've got to be that guy, whatever that guy is. You have to be who you are. Wow, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go from here to some place that will seem like it's way out in left field, but mm -hmm. bear with me again. I have many many different practices, and one of my practices is educational consulting. Believe it or not, I help people get into top um, business school programs in the United States and around the world: Harvard Business School, London Business School, Stanford, Wharton, etc. Top 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 level. And candidates uh, will come to me and they'll ask, "What does it take to get into this?" school, you know, do they need the grades, do they need test scores? Say, I tell them they need authenticity, first, last, and only. The business school wants to know the person you really are so that they can say, oh, he's that um, gonna be an entrepreneur in, in, in fish farming guy. They have a way of understanding you and your aspirations that will then let them figure out whether they'll get value out of you in the program, whether you'll get value out of the program. What strikes me about it is the very same thing that leads to success in a purely artistic realm, like stand-up comedy, be who you are, has the same 
path to success in a completely non-artistic, except artistic in the sense that you mean it, in the sense of making something like an application, the same thing is true. If you want to make progress on that path, you have to be authentic. If you are inauthentic, you simply will not succeed. Hmm. Let's, let's just imagine somebody out there is taking notes and maybe writes down those words. If you are inauthentic, you simply will not succeed. And imagine that those words are on a little yellow sticky note sitting in that person's workspace, maybe uh, up against their, the frame of their computer monitor. If you are inauthentic, you simply will not succeed. So now I'm looking at something that I've written and I'm saying to myself, well, this seems workmanlike. It seems like it's doing its job, but it doesn't really feel like me. And then there's a note there, right there, says if you are inauthentic, you simply will not succeed. Now I know how to make my choice. I select in favor of authenticity because I understand that that's the path to success. Clears out the decision space, makes my creative day a little easier. That's what I want. Nice, easy days of creativity. I can't think of a better place to leave it. That's really, really good advice. And John, I, I want to thank you for telling me all this for the book that you wrote and that I bought almost 20 years ago now. Uh, I'm going to rush out and get your new book when I can. And I'd like to have you back when I finish it because you're talking about a lot of awesome stuff and I would love to pick your brain on so many of these topics. Um, I look forward to coming back when the little book of stand-up is out. It's a few months down the line, but you'll, you'll hear about it. I'll come back to you. In the meantime, if I may, can I just speak past you to your listeners for a moment, please, your viewers? Please. Guys, my name is John Vorhaus. You see it right there on the screen, J-O-H-N-V-O-R-H-A-U-S. If you have my name, you have the key to everything there is to find about me in the world of the internet. If you go to Amazon and search my name, you'll get to my Amazon author page and that's got a ton of books, eBooks, audiobooks, including the crushing author narrated audio version of a little book of sitcom and the crushing author narrated audio version of my novel, Lucy in the Sky, which haven't been available for 10 years, but are available now, so yay. Uh, with my name thus armed, you can go to redbubble.com and find your way to my Redbubble store, which is full of really cool art like this. See, this, is, this says, think positive, test negative. You can get all of my art on mugs and t-shirts and banners and that kind of stuff. But, oh, and my website, johnvorehouse.com. But this is the one that I want to get to. Folks, I have made my career out of building personal relationships with the people I help. So if you're out there somewhere and you're thinking to yourself, this John Vorehouse sounds like he's the kind of guy who, who could help me if I sent him a question or bent his ear about it topic or something, I want you to know, and this is from my heart, that I am here to help you. So if you feel like you want to reach out to me directly, it won't take too much detective work to figure out that my email address might be my name at Gmail. And if that's too burdensome for you, you can go to my website and find a contact link there. But I do, I invite your, your questions, your comments, your issues, your problems. I make you this promise. I've made it all my life. If there is some way that I can help you answer a question or resolve a problem, I will help you in any way possible to the extent of my ability, so long as it doesn't take more than five minutes and I don't have to leave my desk. Because the years have taught me that I can accomplish quite a lot in five minutes sitting at my desk and I look forward to helping you in that way. John, that is a very generous offer in all sincerity and everything you mentioned and everything I can think of is gonna be on the show notes at aaronbossig.com. So if somebody wants a shorthand link to any of that and if you find something else you wanna send me, please feel free. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much, John, and we'll talk to you soon.
I would like to thank John for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. I'm going to dispense with the community building part of the show today, and the reason is, normally community building tips are things that I promise will take you less than five minutes and cost you nothing. I can't promise the next thing I talk about is going to be free, but I can promise that it's worth at least five minutes of your time to listen out. I'm asking people to pay attention to SoonerCon, a convention in central Oklahoma. Even if you don't live nearby, you should know what this is. This is the product of what's called the Future Society of Central Oklahoma. This is a fantastic nonprofit organization that is trying to promote arts, literature, and science through the lens of pop culture and science fiction. Places and groups like this are the exact reason that I do this kind of show, because I believe that we can gain information about our lives and we can build a better life by looking at the fiction and fantasy that we enjoy and trying to see how we can make one more like the other. The Future Society of Central Oklahoma has created SoonerCon, and they have been putting on this convention for years, decades as a matter of fact. And unfortunately, the last two events they had planned have been canceled. This has cost them quite a bit of money, and they're willing to put on the next event, but they need your help. If you go to SoonerCon.com, you can find ways to help them out, whether that be participating in the charity auction they have going, or participating in the crowdfunding events, or possibly just assuring them that you would purchase a ticket if you have the opportunity. Reach out to them, possibly share them on your social media. If you live in Oklahoma and you want to check these guys out, I strongly highly suggest you do that. But even if you don't live nearby, see what your fellow fans are doing. See what fandom is like in a different part of the country or a different part of the world. I've talked to people from the Future Society of Central Oklahoma, and they're all fantastic people. Very much worth striking up a conversation with. That's SoonerCon.com. You can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, and we are syndicated on Realm of the Mist, a fantastic podcast network. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.